let's take our Bibles and turn to the third book of the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus. When was the last time you read the book of Leviticus? It's been a couple days, right? Leviticus chapter 20. I want you to think this morning about a word, just one word, and this word has been on my mind for a couple weeks, and the more I've thought about it, the more I have been convinced that our sense of the word is very different than the Lord's definition of the word. The word is purity. What do you think of when you hear the word purity? If you had to explain that word to somebody, I have no idea what that word means. What does that mean? We would probably explain it maybe in the negative, that purity is the absence of anything unclean or the condition of something having no dirt or no stain or no guilt attached to it. Dictionary defines purity as freedom from anything that debases, contaminates, or pollutes It also defines it as innocence and purity from evil. Dictionary cheated and used the word in the definition. Anything, freedom from anything that debases, contaminates, or pollutes, innocence, purity from evil. The problem we have is that there is nothing tangible we can look at around us in our lives, in our society, that we can point to as an example of something that is completely pure. Even the most sterile object, even the most sterile environment has some measure of impurity. I remember uh, a while back, probably 20 years ago, uh, ivory soap claimed in a commercial that it was 99.44% pure. You remember that ad? And the reason they didn't say 100% is because they had a chemist look at it and his analysis was that 56 one-hundredths of a percent of that soap didn't fall into the category of pure soap. So even something that was designed to clean and to make pure wasn't pure itself. Now, apart from understanding of the Lord, who we know is holy and we know is pure, but the problem is we we have a limited, finite understanding of the Lord, right? We know theoretically, we know with our faith that God is pure, but we haven't viewed it, we don't understand it because we're still tainted by sin. When we get to heaven, we'll understand the purity of God, but, but right now we still quite can't get it. And yet First Peter 1 says that as believers, our souls have been purified by the Lord. Ephesians 5, which we'll look at at the end, uh, says that we have been cleansed and sanctified by Christ. Now we trust in that truth, we know that that is is true for our lives, that our souls have been purified by the Lord, and we have confidence as believers that God has removed our sin and cleansed us and washed us, and that he has redeemed us and bought us and declared us to be righteousness, that we are secure as believers as his forgiven, purified children forever. The question is, what's the implication for now? Because Christ says to us, be holy as I am holy, which means there's no room for equivocation. There's no room for negotiation. It is God's complete and utter expectation that we will be holy like him and that we will duplicate the life of Jesus Christ. Now, that gets very sobering very quickly. And I have wrestled with how to preach this message. And I've asked the Lord, 
not to let me preach it, but to let him preach it. Because there's no way I can preach this message. There's no way I can can explain the word here on my own because I'm impure. I'm as impure as you are. So the challenge for us is to try to understand that when we trust the Lord to save us, and when we've been bought with the price of Christ's blood, and when we've been forgiven and redeemed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that God's next expectation and God's ongoing expectation is that we will be pure. That's not a future goal. That is a now requirement. That's not saying, well, I know God expects me to be pure, but I'll never be pure until I get to heaven, so I'm just going to do my best. No, God expects us to be pure now. Forty-three times in the Old Testament, God says to his people, consecrate yourselves. The word means to sanctify and prepare and set apart as holy. So God constantly tells his people, I want you to cleanse yourself, I want you to purify yourself, I want you to prepare your hearts, and I want you to be set apart as holy. And that's by no means an unreasonable expectation from the Lord. Because Ephesians 1 says that when he chose to save us before the world was formed, he did so so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now this expectation, this requirement of the Lord is as old as many thousands of years. And we can go all the way back to this passage here in Leviticus chapter 20 to see both the reasoning that the Lord has for asking this and his explanation of how we can do it. And I want to concentrate mainly in our time this morning on five verses here in Leviticus 20, which I hope will kind of jump off the page at us because when I read them, I said, boy, that's a challenge, but that's what I need to hear in my own life. Start in chapter 20, verse 22. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and to do them so that the land in which I'm bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you will not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I've said to you, you are to possess their land and I myself will give it to you to possess it a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I've separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the people's to be mine. Now, Leviticus is a book that details the law of God. We know that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, that he received the law. The people were able to hear that. Moses was given the Ten Commandments, which tends to be our capitalization of the whole law. But God, throughout Leviticus, lays out a, a very strict and stringent law for his people. In Leviticus 20, this passage we just read, is really the, the practical explanation. It's the, it's the rationale, it's the application of the whole law into kind of these five verses. And to that end, there are four applications that we're going to look at in a couple minutes, four definitive instructions that God gives to his people. But it's important before we study those to understand the people's situation because it parallels ours. And you say, well, these people are standing in the middle of the desert in the Middle East. 
What does it have to do with me sitting in a room in Racine, Wisconsin on October, November, sorry, I'm in October, November 17, 2013? There's little parallel, Paul, between that. Actually, that's not true. There's a very strong parallel. Israel's still in the wilderness. They're they're headed toward the promised land, which God says, if you look back at verse 24, I will give to you to possess. It will be filled with milk and honey. We always see that phrase. He gave that uh, to Moses when they left Egypt. We we always see that they're headed towards something very wonderful, very different than they were in, in, in Egypt. It's going to be a blessing. It's going to be green. It's going to be excellent for them. But that doesn't mean it was pure. See, once they get there, the Lord says, I'm going to go before you and I'm going to drive out your enemies. But I want you to understand that what will be left behind, the the influence of the Canaanites will be that they have left their idols, they have left their religion, they have left their depravity behind them. The Canaanites were not godly people. They were not even religious people. They were depraved, they were wicked, and they worshipped false idols. And God says, when you go into the land to possess it, you're going to have to resist it and get rid of it because the land is infected. The land is infected. And I know your propensity, Israel. I know your tendencies. I know your trends. You have a, a draw in your heart. You have an attraction to false gods. So God says in verse 23, when you go in, don't follow the customs of the nation. Because I abhor the sin that the people have embraced. Now, I I was intrigued by that word abhorred. So I looked it up in the Hebrew language. Abhor means to loathe, to be grieved, and to feel a sickening dread about something. So God says, I loathe, I am grieved, and I have a sickening dread in my stomach, if we can speak metaphorically of God that way. I, I have this uneasiness. I have this... Anger, I have this hatred of what's going on here. Stop and think about that for a moment because it's a very important insight into sin and it's a very important insight into the heart of God. Sin is so evil and so awful and so destructive that it causes God to abhor what has happened and it causes Him to be grieved by His creation that he's made in his own image. And he says, because of it, I need to cast those that are doing it away from me. And that's not just for unbelievers. He's saying this to Israel. He says, I give you this land. You're going in. And I told you what it's going to be. But I'm telling you that if you do what the Canaanites are doing, if you embrace what they're doing, the land is going to vomit you out. You're going to be expelled. You're going to be spit out by the land. God's speaking of the land like it's a person. He says, don't go in and do the same things that they're doing. Now, even though this is directed to the Old Testament nation of Israel, it has complete application to us because the concept of sin and holiness and God's people being set apart are timeless. God wants to bless Israel here. They're his people. And he says... You have my blessing. You have my leading. I'm taking you into the land. But that doesn't mean that you're immune from the discipline that I'm going to put on your life if there is moral degeneration. And he says in this passage very clearly, if you do this, Israel, if you do this, my people, I'm going to bring you out from under my hand of blessing and you're going to be on your own. 
Look back at verse 22 for a minute. He says, my blessing has been wonderful. I brought you into this land. Now don't miss it. Remember all I've done for you. Remember how when you were overdue and crying out to me in Egypt, as soon as you cried, I came. Remember how when Pharaoh wouldn't let you go, I brought ten plagues that delivered you in a miraculous way. Remember how when you started crying out to Moses and saying, I can't believe you let us out here in the desert to die, when you were positioned at the Red Sea and the Red Sea was behind you and Pharaoh's troops were in front of you and you didn't have a prayer. Remember how I came in and put my cloud and my fire in front of you and then took you through on dry ground and then drowned Pharaoh's troops? Remember that? You remember how when you cried out to me and said, we don't have anything to eat, I gave you bread from heaven and I gave you meat flying through the sky and I gave you water out of our... Do you remember those things, Israel? Remember how faithful I've been to you? It shouldn't take a lot of wisdom. I shouldn't have to convince you to obey me, but, but to ensure, look now, let's take apart the text, to ensure you won't leave my blessing. I'm going to give you four very clear commands. And I want us to notice this morning how definitive and how absolute they are because they apply to us. And I want you to encourage you, if you don't take notes, write these down. Because these need to get in our hearts this week. This needs to be something we look at again and again. Make this chapter your study chapter this week. All right? Four very clear commands. Number one, verse 22. They were to keep and do all his statutes and ordinances. Keep means to guard and protect. They were to guard and protect all his statutes and his ordinances. And they were to do them. The second verb is important because that word means to accomplish. In other words, God is saying there's an active intentionality to show my word has value and then to be very obedient to what it says. And that eliminates any sense of this being optional or selective. The Lord expects his people to be pure by completely obeying his holy standards. Now, that's first. And that's the foundation for it, because God says, my expectation, my plan now, this is this is not a debate. We're not going to have a discussion. This is not a dialogue. This is what I'm telling you. You're my people. I've led you to this place. I've been more faithful than you can possibly imagine. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to guard and protect and accomplish my commandments. Second, verse 23, to accomplish this, you will not follow the customs of the wicked nation. Rather than conforming, rather than giving in and participating in what they value, God says to his people, you are to separate them yourselves away from it. Listen now, you're to separate yourselves away from it. You're not to show any affinity toward it, and you're not to show any association with it at all. Now, God gives a very powerful reason why his people need to do this. He says, if you don't, you're going to be in a position where I abhor your behavior. You're going to get infected by what they're doing. And no parent, right, wants their child to be infected. You would not expose your child today to a deadly virus. If there was a needle sitting here that was infected, I wouldn't bring my child up here and say, let me stab this into your arm and push that infection into you. That would be unthinkable, right? No parent would do that. And yet, when we sin against the Lord, you know what we're doing? 
We're doing that to ourselves. And he looks at us and says, I don't want you to be infected. I don't, I don't, I don't want you to be in that position. So you need to resist and separate yourself from the customs of a wicked nation. We'll talk more about them in a minute. Go to verse 25. Look at the third thought. As you're doing this then, he says, you need to establish a clear distinction between what is clean and what is unclean. Now, the responsibility is being put on them and on us. God says, I've established this. I've shown you the distinction between pure and impure, even down to what they could eat and what they could be around. And that's all throughout Leviticus, the customs and the the Levitical law that he gave them. But he says, you need to be the ones that establish this and practice this. And you are accountable to the boundaries that I set in my word. Now, that's a very difficult concept for us in 2013. Because there is such strong cultural pressure, even within the church, to not hold on to biblical convictions and and a declaration that if we do, that we're narrow-minded and we're intolerant and that we're not representative of Jesus because the world wants to now define Jesus as, well, Jesus just loved everybody and just allowed everything and he saw good in everybody and he wants everybody to go to heaven and, and he doesn't hold us accountable. That's not the Jesus I read about in my Bible. Jesus' first words were, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from sin. He challenged even religious people. He says, you're a bunch of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. You're hypocritical. You act like you're Christians and you're not. That's not, oh, I just love and everything's love. Does God love people? Are you kidding? Of course, look at the cross. God loves everybody. That doesn't mean he just looks aside when sin is there. And yet, We've been told that if we hold a biblical conviction like these five verses say, that we're a bunch of narrow-minded, intolerant bigots. And then the church has done it to itself. We've widely embraced the philosophy that if we break down the barriers of conviction, that people will better relate to us and that somehow they'll be more drawn to the gospel even though there's no conviction behind it. That has led to swearing in the pulpit and churches in bars. But, but we think, well, that's okay because people will think that, that that's a good way to go. Well, I have trouble squaring that with Leviticus 20.25, which is still the word of God. Just because it's the Old Testament doesn't mean it's God's, not God's words anymore. And then fourth, look at verse 25. He says, you're not to do anything that's offensive to the Lord. Instead, be pure and honorable. And as he says in verse 26, Be holy like the Lord and set apart from all people to be his. Now, that doesn't leave any room for conformity or freedom to just live however we want. Now, here's where this part of the study starts to get a little challenging. So grab your seatbelt and put it on, okay? We are quick. It's interesting how quick we are to claim the right to liberty in our lifestyle even at the expense of another believer's conviction or walk. Over the years, I have had this discussion so many times with people who feel it's their right to exercise their freedom to live in a certain way and not be accountable for the perception of it. Now, I will be the first to admit I am not perfect on this in any way. And I'm just as guilty as everybody else of this, so it's hard to 
to stand here and, and say this. But I find it's ironic that we don't defend the call to pureness and holiness and separation from the world with the same passion that we do that I get to have my liberty. Can you imagine if we said, yes, I have liberty, but I am more committed and I am more passionate about being holy. And it's ironic that, that Christ died to deliver us from the control and consequence of sin. And as Paul says in Romans, we then use that freedom to go back and live under bondage and justify that it's permissible. Christ went to the cross to deliver us. And then we say, thank you so much. Now I want to just play with my old life a little bit because I like it. Purity has no room for nuance. The bottom line is not whether we have the latitude to be on the edge of worldliness or to, or to do exactly what the world values. The question is, and this has been on my heart for about two weeks, the question is, can I define and defend what I'm doing as pure and holy and pleasing to the Lord? If that's our evaluation, if that's our standard, it will change the way we live. I have to believe as the Lord looks at our country that um, many times he says, I abhor what's going on. Because we have seen that happen in our country and we've seen it happen in the world. And God knows that we're vulnerable to that. He knows that there is the potential for us to fall back into that, which is why he's so clear and so definitive about saying you have to intentionally and aggressively separate yourself from this. You have to pursue Purity. Now, the difficulty is we live in a very, very challenging time. And more so for the younger generations because they are so oversaturated with media. And I became very convinced last night that the enemy has launched a full-out blitz to create a world where the barrage of information is so strong that we're almost powerless to combat it. I don't know about you, but I'm weary I'm weary of the information. I'm weary of how much is going on. I'm, and, and I'm just overwhelmed by it. I did some research this week of how overwhelming it really is. Let me bore you for a couple minutes with statistics. On YouTube, 60 hours of video are uploaded every minute. Over 4 billion videos are viewed every day. More video is uploaded to YouTube in one month than the three major networks created in the last 60 years. 500 years of YouTube video, 500 years of YouTube video are watched every day on Facebook. Speaking of Facebook, 48% of 18 to 34-year-olds check it when they wake up, and 28% look at it before they get out of bed. I wonder how many of them are guilty of that. Over 700 billion minutes each month are spent on Facebook. Now, there's no way that we can keep up with that. There's no way that we can monitor that. In terms of TV, children spend more time watching TV than any other activity besides sleep. The average youth watches TV 25 hours a week and plays seven hours of video games. 44% of kids say they watch something different when their parents aren't around. And by 18, this one blew me away, a child will have seen 16,000 simulated murders and 200,000 acts of violence, as well as 4.4 scenes of sexual content per hour of TV. 
Studies show that exposure to violence increases aggressive behavior in children and that watching sex on TV influences teens to have sex at an earlier age. 46% of high school students have had sex, but studies say that the majority say they wish they had waited. Meanwhile, positive factors for youth to remain virgins are living with both parents, parental monitoring, having parents who disapprove of premarital sex. Do you notice the theme there, folks? And being religious. The trend continues in movies with a recent secular study that was in USA Today showing that today's PG-13 movies have more violence than the R-rated movies of the 80s, with gun violence three times more prevalent and violence four times more than before. 90% of the top-grossing films have violence in them. The Internet's worst 2007 study catalogued 700 million pornographic websites. The largest consumers of Internet pornography are 12 to 17-year-old kids. Six years ago, 2.5 billion pornographic emails were sent every day. So we don't think it's just the kids. 60% of Christian men have sought out some form of pornography. 91% of men raised in Christian homes were exposed to pornography growing up. That is a staggering statistic. And it's not just the men. 17% of all women struggle with pornography addiction. One in three visitors to adult websites are women. Internet pornography and or illicit chat is a factor in two out of three divorces. And let's not forget music. American youth listen to approximately 10,500 hours of rock music between 7th and 12th grade. That's just 500 hours less than they spend in school in 12 years. In 1995, that's 18 years ago, it's gotten far worse, only 10 of the top-selling 40 CDs had no profanity or lyrics dealing with violent sex or drugs, and studies show conclusively that parents are clueless about the lyrics their kids are listening to. Now, that's utterly depressing. But we're not called to live in a cave. We do need to understand that there is a vastly new environment that's been created that demands not conformity and not compliance, but holiness and purity. The answer is not to yield to the culture. The answer is to fight the culture. And we have to resist the infection to protect our hearts and minds and witness. And we have to guard our eyes and we have to guard our hearts from being infected. How do I know that? Look back at verse 24. The Lord says, I have separated you from the peoples. I have separated you. And in case we feel weird about that or feel like social outcasts, we need to again remember that we have been bought from sin. And the Bible says we are aliens. We are not of this world. Our home and our treasure is in heaven. It's not here. But here's the pressing challenge for us as believers and as a church. Instead of being separate and instead of striving for purity, we're being surpassed by other religions that don't trust in Jesus Christ but have more moral conviction than we do. I did a comparison of religions this week. Other religions stress modesty in how their followers dress as a sign of their faith, as a matter of bringing honor to the Lord. But anything kind of goes with Christians. We've gotten to the place not here, thank the Lord, where, where we have careless disrespect for how we come to the house of God. I became convicted this a couple of years ago when I was at Chick-fil-A. Shocker, I know. And, and I was standing there, and I'm looking at the guy making fries, and he's wearing a tie. And I thought, we can't, we can't even beg people to wear a tie to church. Not that we need to. Listen to me. Hear my heart this morning, okay? I'm not saying show up with a tie next week. I'm saying a, a matter of, of honor to the Lord. 
Buddhists, Muslims, Sikhs, and Mormons, I'm about to tick off a lot of people, all view alcohol as sinful. Pentecostals and Methodists believe Christians should abstain from alcohol. But the newest trend in Christianity, Randy will back me up on this because he heard about it, is for churches to brew their own label of beer. Ostensibly, because that will make us look cool and it will give us an opportunity to connect with people on their own terms. Now, we'll post pictures of this on our social media, but we would never post a picture of us witnessing to somebody or raising our hands in church or being on our knees in prayer. If you destroy the Quran, if you draw a picture of Muhammad, you're sentenced to death. But we post cartoons of Jesus and throw around our Bibles literally and figuratively. I even watched a video on Friday from a large church in California that's making the rounds on Facebook where a comedian and a pastor do a routine during a morning service about the homeboy version of the Bible. And the crowd thinks it's hilarious. Oh, that's great. And they're taking the Bible and they're changing it to fit the culture for laughs. Look at verse 20. Or excuse me, look at Leviticus 20. Don't follow the customs of the nation. Make a distinction between clean and unclean. And be holy because I have set you apart to be mine. We have effectively eradicated that distinction by our actions. Now, I know right now it's uncomfortable, and a lot of us are uneasy, and this is not easy. It's not popular. But Jesus never said Christianity will be mainstream. And he never said, following me won't require sacrifice. The cross is an offense to many. God says, I have a yoke on you. It's light, but it's still a yoke. And Jesus said, in comparison to your love for me, you're going to have to hate the world. Now, those are not my words. Those are his words. And we have to ask, am I willing to live by those terms for the sake of being redeemed and forgiven forever? We have to ask ourselves, what are my convictions and what is my reputation? Do they match God's word and God's expectation or is there a gap? Does my lifestyle fit holiness? And again, I'm not saying this as somebody has this mastered. This is every bit as much for me as it is for you. Is there a gap between holiness and our lifestyle? Turn to one more thought. We're going to pray. Turn to Ephesians 5 just for a minute. Now it got very quiet. We're not playing I'll fly away anymore. Ephesians 5. Here's a passage that we always study in terms of marriage. But right in the middle of what Christ, uh, the Spirit is talking about, about marriage and Christ in the church, he sets out a spiritual principle that reminds us how essential purity is. Let's read just three verses and we're going to pray. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look why. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be, tell me the last three words, holy and blameless. Christ died for us. Jesus set the precedent. He gave himself for the church, sacrificing so that he might sanctify us. Don't run past that. It is the sole reason for the cross. The reason Jesus went to the cross was to make you and me pure and holy. That was the only reason he went. 
Now, Christ had to die for that transaction and transformation to take place. But he says, I will cleanse you and I will make you without spot or without blemish, holy and blameless. So what is our response to that? Do we willfully walk back into bondage that he's delivered us from and say, well, I'll just repent and I'll apologize and I'll confess it and God will forgive it and it's no big deal. I can keep living by my old life and God will bless it. Or do we show our gratitude to him for what he's done because he says, you be holy like I'm holy. There's no middle ground. It's all or nothing. And that's hard for us to hear. I'll be honest with you. It is hard for us to hear because we want to have some equivocation in there. And that sounds so harsh to say, look, it's all or nothing. Either we're holy or we're not. Is that it? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Bring it to our hearts now, we pray. Help us and bless us. Lord, we need to be people that are set apart, that are holy for you. And I pray you challenge us and convict us throughout this week that we would examine our actions and truly be people that show our love for you by sacrificing our lives and sacrificing our will to be pure and holy. Bless us and help us, we pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. God bless you.